0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast. Making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, December the 21st, 2022. It is currently 4.45 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. I hope That everyone who listens to my podcast and listens to my preaching, I hope they have an understanding of some very basic facts. I I really do. And and these are, I mean, there are a lot of basic facts I wish people, you know, understood who listen to my podcast, but I'm thinking of some specific facts that I wish everyone who listens to this podcast would 100% understand. Number one, I wish every Christian who listens to this podcast would understand that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. That we are saved by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. And because we're saved by an imputed righteousness, this is so important, because I'm saved by an imputed righteousness... It is impossible for you to come along and say, well, here's the test to prove that you're really saved because I'm saved by an imputed righteousness. The only test you can give is you can give that, you can take that test, but it has to be given to my imputed righteousness, which is the righteousness of Christ. And whatever test you prov- whatever test you give me, guess what? That imputed righteousness is going to pass. But if you skip the imputed righteousness and you come directly at me and say, okay, here, do you do this? Do you do this? Do you do this? Do you do this? In other words, you give me laws and my obedience to those laws proves whether I'm saved or not saved. Well, then clearly I'm going to fail that test. Because the law of God demands that I be holy as he is holy. It demands that I be perfect as my heavenly father is imperfect. The law demands a personal, perfect, exact, entire, and perpetual obedience, which I will never, ever accomplish. So I want everyone to understand that we are saved by an imputed righteousness, a foreign righteousness, an alien righteousness. We are saved by Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. I want you to understand that that it's the imputed righteousness that that I'm saved by, not something infused into me. That imputed righteousness is outside of me. It, it's It's not inside of me. It's outside of me. It's simply accredited to me. And I wish everyone would understand that gospel. And I know so many Christians say they understand that gospel, but in reality, they don't. Because the minute you really try to articulate that, the minute you try to explain that, the accusations come pouring in. You're an antinomian. You're telling people they can live any way they want. And it is so frustrating. So I hear, so the fact number one that I want everyone to understand is that, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, by an imputed righteousness alone, apart from works. If you add any works in any way, shape or form to salvation, you are destroying that whole concept right there. All right, so I I want to really stress that. I want everyone to know that fact. Fact number two is I wish with everything in my being, I wish with everything in my being that it was actually true that when I became a Christian, that I was given supernatural power by God. To be able to say, notice in, yes to God, and that I, I can, I don't know, I can obey the law of God. I can do it. Now, I, I, the very Christians who say they believe that we're saved by an imputed righteousness almost always flips it around at some point and says basically that what salvation is really about is that God now makes me able to keep the law. But I, I wish it was true. 2,000 years of church history. Wouldn't it be amazing that everyone who is saved, we can say no to sin, yes to God, and we, we can just keep the law. We don't even need Jesus anymore. I mean, we can just say, Jesus, thank you for giving me the ability. But, but, but if the minute I think that salvation gives me the ability to keep the law, then I don't even need the imputed righteousness anymore. All I need is my, my sins washed away. And now all I have to do is just obey, obey, obey. But here's the reality. As much as I wish it was true, here is the reality. People sin continually all the time. Anytime I open the Bible and I look at what it tells me to do, you know what I see? A failure. You know what I see? A sinner. I sin in thought. I sin in word. I sin in deed. I sin all the time I sin before I'm on the air I sin after I'm on the air sometimes I'm probably sinning while I'm on the air with wrong thoughts I'm always sinning and you can say that's horrible I'm going to go find a podcaster who doesn't sin well good luck you're not going to find one I'm going to go find a pastor who never sins good luck go fi- Go try to find one I wish it was true that we had some supernatural power some supernatural ability I I wish it was true that in in practical terms, I do believe it's true positionally, but I I wish it was true that practically speaking, that I was a new creature, that the old was gone and everything was new, but I know this to be true, the sin nature remains. So obviously not everything is new and obviously not all the old is gone. I wish it was true in practice that I've been set free from the power of sin. I wish it was true. But some people don't seem to understand that I wish that. They think, oh, no, no. He just wants to teach some kind of easy believism. No, I wish it was true. But here's what I know. Wherever you look, every church, every life of a believer, if you, now, just sometimes you don't even have to look hard. It's very open and evident, all the sin in the church. We see it constantly. But the people who talk a big game, sooner or later, maybe it won't ever be made public, but trust me, there's sin in their thoughts, words, and deed, and in their actions, and in their motivations. So I wish everybody would truly understand that we're saved by an imputed righteousness. And number two, I wish everyone would understand that I'm not ever promoting, hey, let's just live any way we want. What I'm promoting is a realistic understanding that we have a sinful nature and we keep sinning. But I wish it wasn't true. I wish it wasn't true. I hope that those two, there's more things I wish people would understand. But the reason I'm trying to stress that is because we're getting ready to get into a very important conversation here that I think is going to, once again, people are going to misunderstand and guess what I'm going to be accused of antinomianism or worse. Now, if you've been with us, you know, we are reviewing a sermon that's, answering charges of antinomianism. Obviously, this pastor has been told, basically, his teaching has been accused that it's antinomian, and he has obviously answered it before, and he's answering it again. And the review that we've done up to this point, he's obviously very bothered by it, he's very irritated by it, and he's tired of being accused of being an antinomian. And there's just a lot of Christians running around. And again, the minute you preach sovereign grace. The minute you preach that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, by an imputed righteousness alone, it, 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 it's inevitable. Someone's going to say antinomian, antinomian. It's like, all I'm trying to do is preach the, the the gospel that's taught in the word of God, that we're saved by grace alone, apart from works. I am not going to compromise and teach basically a Protestant version of Catholicism where I preach some kind of infused righteousness. I refuse to do it. You can call me antinomian all day. So he's bothered by it. I get tired of it. I was accused of antinomianism in 2022. It's just insane to me. Um that, that, that could ever even come. I mean, anyone's ever listened to my preaching. How could that ever even occur? But you emphasize grace and, and, and put it. And it's, it's like, no, man, it's got to be the practical. It's got to be the, we got, and it's crazy. So we've been listening to this. It's been a, it's been a fascinating sermon so far. He's definitely bothered. I'm not going to go back and review everything, but basically we're in a point where he shows that any time in church history, going all the way back to the time of Augustine, going all the way through the Reformation, all the way up to Finney, all the way up to Wesley, that when you go through church history, guess what you find? That constantly people are accusing others of antinomianism. And it seems like the more you preach the gospel, the more you will be accused of it. So that's what he's doing. But then he's about to transition in this sermon into looking at Romans 5 and 6 for what he feels is the biblical answer to the charge of antinomianism. And he, he, it seems, according to an email that I received about this sermon, because someone sent me this sermon, and their email reads, the pastor preaching said that the law-gospel distinction is solved by regeneration. This makes me nervous, because what is he going to offer as the supposed answer to antinomianism, or to the charge of antinomianism? And why is he trying, in, in a sense, to solve the distinction between law and gospel? Remember, the Bible is made up of two fundamental doctrines. And these two doctrines are fundamentally different from one another. And these two doctrines are law and gospel. I think we must maintain the distinction, not solve the distinction. Now, I know what he possibly is referencing here, but I just want to make sure that that is very clear. So I am just, I am, I am concerned that before we get done with this that i'm going to be sitting here saying things and you're going to be like how no no you're an antinomian how dare you and i want you to know i wish it was true that i could just look at every christian and go hey you have power now you can obey the law you have the ability now to say no to sin you can do it you can do it well once the minute the minute i tell people they have that ability well then i it would be foolish for me to then say you can't be sinless or you can't be perfect because the minute I say you can't be sinless and you can't be perfect means whatever power I'm claiming you have is obviously limited. You can't say obviously no to sin all the time. You obviously can't say yes to God all the time because you just said they can't be perfect. And there is a logical fallacy in that. Whether do we have the power, or don't have the power. The minute you say, well, you're free from sin, but you can't be perfect, but you can't be sinless. Well, then clearly I'm not free from sin. Hey, you're a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things are new, but you can't be perfect. Well, then clearly I'm not new. So we have to understand that positionally, I am free from sin. Positionally, I am a new creature, the oldest God. That is all true positionally. In practice, I still have a sinful nature, and I will sin. I do sin all the time, just like you. But for some reason, this all becomes so convoluted, and then there's accusations made, and it's it makes me angry, that you get accused of something when when, when when people, like they get so mad at you. And it's like, so you're mad at me because I'm simply trying to make sure we maintain a biblical understanding of the gospel? Because if you knew me, you knew the one thing I would wish wish for every believer and what I wish for me above everything else is I never had a sinful desire. I never had any desire for sin and that I could be the most holy person in the world. I wish that was true. I desire that to be true but I am confronted hourly, minutes, every second of the fact that I'm still a sinner. And I'm sorry, I can't pretend otherwise. If you can pretend that you, that you love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, if you, can, if you can pretend that you love your neighbor as yourself, if you can pretend that you're perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, if you can pretend that you're holy as God is holy, well I, congratulations because that's the greatest acting job in the history of mankind, but I'm sorry, I know that I'm not, and if I can't even accomplish those basic scriptures, well then that clearly tells me that i I can't do this i that clearly out there i the power everyone claims is a figment of someone's imagination so If you if you haven't been with us, please go listen to our series, Understanding Law and Gospel. This message will be a part of it. We've now spent like, what, 45 hours talking about law and gospel. And we're going to be adding to it with this message. But we're going to, no matter how long this takes, if it takes an hour and a half, if it takes two hours, we're going to finish this sermon because now we're up to the section where he's going to be like, okay, you accuse me of antinomianism. Here's the biblical response to antinomianism. Right? Now, I think that uh, the accusation of antinomianism is foolish because the people who make the accusation usually have never actually studied what it is. They've never, they, they, it's just, it's just insane. It, it's, it's a boogeyman. It's like, oh, I learned a theological term. Oh, wait, you're preaching too much grace. Wait, you're preaching too much imputed righteousness. Gotta throw in some works. Okay. And if you don't throw in those works or agree with me, you're an antinomian. It's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. So, um, but, Yes, you can hear that I'm exercised about this because I just, I know that I'm, I, don't, I, I guess I'm just worried. Remember when I review the sermons, I don't listen to them first. So I guess I'm just worried that he's going to come along and say, this is what I'm worried he's going to do. Hey, we preach salvation by an imputed righteousness alone, right? That's what we preach. We're not antinomian. And the reason we're not antinomian as we believe because of regeneration that we can now keep the law and and, and they're going to give some kind of weird idea that basically we can keep the law. And I'm going to lose my mind if that happens because I wish it was true, but I've got 2000 years of church history to prove it's not. And I got my own life. And you know what? No matter what you tell me, oh, you know, You know the sin that's inside of you. You know what lurks in your heart. You know what lurks in your mind. You know what lurks. And if you're even remotely honest, you would be like, wow, I, man, I sin all the time. All right? So I don't know where this is going. But here we go. Thirty-three minutes left. He's currently in the section showing us that throughout church history, people have been accused of being antinomian, and the people being accused of antinomianism are the very people who basically tried to teach that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And they were accused by uh, – the the accusations came from Pelagians. They came from the Roman Catholic Church. uh, They came from Arminians. They came from Finney, and they came from, I think, uh, uh, John Wesley. I think it's John Wesley uh, himself, and he's he's in the middle of doing that. Here we
1: go. You know who else made the same charge? The Arminians. Arminians lodged the same complaint against the Reformed churches. The Arminians taught that true Christians could lose their salvation by sinning, thus teaching that we maintain our salvation and ultimately save ourselves by our works. The Reformed churches taught that justification and getting into heaven was by faith alone and Christ alone. And the Arminian response to that was, you're saying that we can sin so that grace may abound. You're saying we can live like the devil and still get into heaven. Charles Finney in the early 19th century said that if justification is by faith alone and not by the sinner's obedience to the law, then antinomianism must be true. We can sin all we want and still go to heaven. John Wesley, at various times in his career, said the same thing. If you teach justification by faith alone, apart from the sinner's obedience, then we have to be antinomians, and we must say that we can live like the devil and still go to heaven. In fact, many people are not aware of this, but John Wesley himself said in the Methodist minutes, he called the doctrine of justification, as spelled out by the Westminster Confession, quote, imputed nonsense, end quote. Will we and our children and their children hear these same charges, I promise you they will. I guarantee you they will.
0: His point, and you can hear his passion, is that any time you try to preach salvation by grace alone, faith alone, because of Christ alone, no, apart from works, based off imputed righteousness, I cannot stress this enough. It's just, it's so amazing to me that somehow in the Protestant world, we forgot that the entire Reformation really came down to, are we saved by an imputed righteousness or infused righteousness? Because somewhere in the Protestant world, somewhere in the evangelical world, we reached over and said, uh, that imputed righteousness is good, but we got to get some infused righteousness. We got to do Z." And if you say that we don't have to do that, and, that, and and by doing this, it, it you know, this is how we know we're truly saved. Unless you say that, you're an antinomian. You're an antinomian. And let me just say it again. I know I'm repetitive, but I want everyone to understand this point. If I am saved by imputed righteousness, that is Christ's righteousness, passive and active obedience, imputed to my account. All right? That, that righteousness is outside of me. It's accredited to my account. So, So listen, that doesn't make me more righteous. It doesn't give me any ability. I am still a sinner with a sinful nature. I'm still ungodly, but I'm declared to be holy because of this imputed righteousness. So if you walk up to me and say, hey, 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 I've got to test your salvation. So do you do this, 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 and this? It's a foolish test because obviously I'm going to fail it because I'm still a sinner with a sinful nature. And not only that, since I'm saved by an imputed righteousness, it doesn't matter if I pass your test or fail your test, because the issue is I'm saved by an imputed righteousness. So whatever test you have, you have to test the righteousness that is accredited to my account. You can't test me. You got to test the righteousness that's accredited to my account. And that righteousness will pass any test because that righteousness obeyed the law of God perfectly on my behalf and, and Christ died for all of my breaking of the law. So I don't understand how people just don't comprehend. Look, it, your your options are imputed or infused. And if infused, stop going to a Protestant church that's basically Catholicism light. Go to an actual Catholic Catholic church. Then you can have infused righteousness, and at least they're willing to admit that that even with an even with an infused righteousness. You're ultimately going to die, still not ready to get to heaven because you still have a sin nature. You're still a sinner. So you're going to have to go to purgatory to get, at least get purged so you can make it all the way. Uh, at least they have a system there to acknowledge, hey, you're still going to have trouble. Protestants just say, no, 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 no. I'm going to be, I don't know. I, my, my works somehow prove it. So it's, it's my works, my imperfect works proved and, and um, prove an imputed righteousness. It makes absolutely no sense. But you can tell he's exercised by it. I'm exercised by it. Because anytime you try to preach that you're saved by an imputed righteousness, you're going to be accused of being an antinomian. It's just, it's inevitable.
1: And they are. And we are. So let us walk through this glorious passage and look at how God answers the charge of antinomianism in the face of a gospel of getting to heaven by faith alone and not in any consideration of our works at all. How does God answer this charge? Let's look at Romans 5.19. Look at your Bibles there. I've given you an outline. It wasn't...
0: Okay, Romans 5.19 is where we're going to start. Romans 5.19. Now, I'm in complete agreement with everything he said uh, for the last 18 minutes and 40 seconds. The only thing I disagreed with was when he said the reason people don't understand... His under, you know, his belief of salvation by imputed righteousness, grace alone, salvation alone. The only reason people don't understand and the only reason people are confused and make counter arguments, according to him, is because they don't read their Bible. I completely disagree with that. I would have said the same thing when I was younger, but now that I'm older, I would not say anything like that. That's, to me, that's arrogant. That's foolish. There's people on every side of any doctrinal issue, whether it's covenant theology versus dispensational. Whether it's all millennial versus premillennial, or whether it's infant baptism or believer's baptism, uh, whether it's it's for closed communion or open communion or closed communion, whether it's for one church structure versus another church structure, whether it's for quote unquote Calvinism versus Arminianism, whether it's for total depravity or Pelagianism, what whatever the issues are, this is so important. Everyone on every side, there are people on both sides who read their Bible, love their Bible, study their Bible. So it's it's not fair to say, well, the reason they don't believe what we believe is mean, because they don't read the Bible. No, there's questions of hermeneutical methods and there's all kinds of other questions while we continue to constantly, as Christians, never can come to agreement on literally anything. And obviously the reason he's preaching this message is because no one can come to agreement on exactly how we understand Wait a minute, I'm saved by an imputed righteousness. So what does that mean practically? Nobody seems to be able to agree on that. And it's not because people don't read their Bible. It's, well, because these issues obviously lead people very confused. And maybe these issues require a lot of work and study. But people who study are studying from a different perspective. I mean, I could go into all the reasons we've already talked about. There's just so many issues that this happens. But I'm nervous. I'm just going to be honest. I've agreed with everything he said other than that little comment about that. Everything else, I'm like, wow, wow. But I get so nervous when people run to Romans 5 and 6. So I I don't know what's getting ready to happen, but here we go.
1: In your bulletin, but it was hopefully you got some passed out to you. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I've called point number one. Look at verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Okay, stop there.
0: Okay, see, good. Stop right there. Now he's in Romans five nineteen. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now I'm gonna just I'm gonna drive this point home. I, I want to. I, I don't want to. I want to hit something. Just to, I need to pound the pulpit. Where's my pulpit? I, I Here, I'll grab a book. I, I don't want to hit the table because I don't want to mess up everything. But, okay, I'm, I'm pounding the pulpit. I'm pounding the pulpit to get everyone's attention. All right. This verse is so important, and I want to make sure we understand this. All right. Let me read it again. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's Adam. He sinned. Sin entered into the world. So guess what? We're all born sinners. So by the obedience of one, that's Christ, shall many be made righteous. We have Adam, sin, his disobedience leads to people being sinners. Christ's obedience leads people to being righteous. But listen to me. They, he does not make them righteous practically. He declares them to be righteous because of an imputed righteousness, positionally. The people who are made righteous positionally still sin practically. They still serve sin with their flesh. Even the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans 7 says that same thing. With my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Even after all of that that important chapter in Romans 7, Paul still says that conclusion. And what does he say in Romans 8? There is therefore now no condemnation. Why? Because we are in Christ Jesus. We are made righteous, not in action. We are made right in our position. Now, listen, see, when I say that people lose their mind on me, I wish it was true. That, and I'll make sure I say that correctly. We are not made righteous in practice. We are made righteous in our position. And when I say that people lose their mind, but I want you to understand, I wish with everything in my being that when I got saved, I would be done, done, da da, never sin again. Now people will say no no we're not saying we'll never sin again. Well if if as long as I continue to sin then clearly I don't possess practical righteousness because guess what the law demands perfect righteousness. So how can I say my imperfect righteousness somehow ever reaches the level of righteousness because I'm constantly sinning and if I break one law I'm guilty of all of it. He made me righteous positionally. He made me righteous in that way, practically still have a sinful nature and I still sin. All right, let's see how he's going to handle this.
1: Through the one man's disobedience, that is, through Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners. Adam was the federal covenantal representative of the entire human race there in the Garden of Eden. God entered into a covenant of life with Adam upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death When Adam rebelled and disobeyed that covenant of works, he disobeyed vicariously and in behalf of every person sitting here and every human being who has ever lived. And that is why every human being ever conceived since Adam did what Adam did and was conceived with the guilt of having done it, which makes all of us subject to physical death and the corruption of our whole natures as well. That's my place. And the very same representative and covenant
0: Okay. I think he, I, I guess he writes his sermons out like in a manuscript form and reads them, which is, I always find that fascinating because you're preaching. And he's like, wait, I lost my, uh, my place that I, that this, this is just a preaching. This has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But when I do a review, I love to, to, to see how preachers handle it. I just find it fascinating. Those who use manuscripts, it blows my mind. I, I don't know how, how you do that. Um, I basically, I walk to the pulpit and I may preach an hour, an hour and 15, hour and 30, and I usually have no notes or maybe just barely notes, maybe like bullet points, uh, but I just study it until I'm ready to go. And then I just go. So it's just, it's just funny, all the different approaches. I'm not saying one is right, and one is wrong. All that really matters, are you handling the word of God correctly, accurately, fairly, d- going deep, and you're not skipping over things or avoiding difficult problems and you're, and you're dealing with that. So, but he, he's, he's establishing just what I established, that it's Adam and we're guilty in Adam, but in Christ, we're made righteous. And I think that's what he's getting ready to cover right here.
1: fundamental way... Jesus Christ, we're told in scripture, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. You see that there in the second half of verse 19. Adam's disobedience was a vicarious disobedience, which all of us are guilty for. In the exact same way, Jesus Christ in behalf of those chosen in him before the foundation of the world achieved vicariously and without any contribution from his people, that by which we are made righteous in his sight and get into heaven. Now look at verses 20 and 21. The law came in so that the transgression. Okay, so
0: I think we can all understand that. I don't think there's any major issues with that. I just want to make sure when he says shall be made righteous, that is an imputed. We are made righteous by an imputed righteousness, not made righteous in a practical way, positionally. All right. Then verse 20, since I interrupted him. Moreover, the law entered that the offense may might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's see how he handles these two verses.
1: ...would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And folks, in verse 20 there, you see it again? See the second part of verse 20? But where sin increase, grace abounded all the more. Therein lies the teaching that men fear will lead to license if it's really preached. And yet Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, taught it clearly, emphatically, repeatedly, and forcefully. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Doesn't that sound dangerous
0: to you? See, some people don't like that because they'll, they'll immediately go, but, 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 wait, wait, wait. What are you saying? I'm saying that by faith, the imputed righteousness of Christ is mine. And no matter how much, no matter how much I sin, no matter how much I fail, I'm covered in an imputed righteousness and grace is greater than any sin I can commit. Now people are, but but, 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 but no, no, you can't say that. You can't say that. You can't say that because you want to have some kind of like, no, you can't be saved. 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 You can't be saved because I'm going to judge you not on the basis of an imputed righteousness. I'm going to judge you on the basis of a practical righteousness. But guess what? If I fell in your practical righteous test, one, you're testing the wrong righteousness. You got to be t- testing the imputed. And number two, for every sin, his grace abounds. Now, it does sound dangerous. I understand that. But being, because it sounds dangerous, is irrelevant, okay? The issue is, is am I saved by an imputed, or am I saved by an infused?
1: And here come the Pelagians. Here come the Arminians. Here come the Socinians. Here come the Phineites. Here comes the Roman Catholic religion. Here comes the Eastern Orthodox religion. Here comes John Wesley. You can't teach that. People are going to think they can live like the devil and still get into heaven if you say that to people. What all of us need to train ourselves to do when we read scripture is listen to the objections to true teaching that the writers bring up in the text itself. Remember, all scripture is breathed forth by God. When you read these words, God is talking To read them is to hear him speaking to you. These are the very words of God in the ultimate sense. And Paul not only knows that people are going to say this when they hear the freeness of God's grace and that entrance into heaven does not take into account our works of any kind whatsoever that we do. God also knows that this objection will be leveled against the biblical truth that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And therefore, we must listen for these objections ourselves. Why? Because false gospels, please hear me, please remember this all your days, false gospels which add human works in any kind of nuanced way to the equation of how we get into heaven will never get the objection in Romans 6.1. These false gospels of the Pelagians, of the Arminians, of the Socinians, of the Phineites, of the Wesleyans, all of which add the works of the sinner decisively to the salvation equation, have not and will never get the objection that Paul's gospel got. And here it is, the most common objection against...
0: That's, that's a very fascinating thing. If you're preaching a false gospel, if you're preaching a false gospel, no one will ever say to you, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If you are not preaching a grace based gospel, no one's ever going to accuse you of that. The only people who get accused of saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, are you saying you can do whatever you want? Are you, are you an antinomian? The only people who get charged that or accused that or questioned that way are those who are preaching the right gospel. The wrong gospel will never be given that charge because they will always add works into some way shape or
1: form it's the gospel of pure and free grace by faith alone in christ alone you ready look at romans 6 1 here it is what shall we say then are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase They stop there y'all need to memorize that you need to hear that you need to understand that in every form it can be offered to us Why would Paul couch that in the form of a question as he did? Probably because that's how he heard it himself. Think about the conversations that he must have had with people. He tells them that their obedience to the law of God does not figure in at all to being justified before God, which is what gets us into heaven. And he taught and preached that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Of course, what are people going to say to that? Well, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Shall we continue living as, as the devil and still think we can go to heaven? Paul brings it up again and again, as I said already in, in Romans 3.8, Romans 3.31. He brings it up in Galatians 3.21 and 22. It's there again. Folks, acceptance by God into heaven does not depend upon, nor is it linked in any way whatsoever to the sinner's works. The legal grounds of our entrance into heaven is the shed blood and imputed righteousness of Christ alone. And we receive justification before God at the last judgment by faith alone, and not by works lest anyone should boast. Well, I guess we can sin all we want and still go to heaven, right? The answer to that question might shock you, but you'll see the rationale behind it here in a minute. When people ask me, are you saying I can live however I want and still go to heaven? The shocking answer is actually, yes, you can.
0: Oh ho ho, ho 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 whoa all right there 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 uh, that's going to shock some people right hey are you saying that i can live any way i want and still go to heaven well if you're saved by an imputed righteousness you can because if uh, because the minute you say no 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 you can't then you're not then you're immediately saying you're not saved by an imputed righteousness or you're saying no no you're saved by an infused righteousness and you've got to demonstrate that you've received that infused righteousness and what you do, which is Roman Catholicism. Now, he says that the text is going to give justification for this answer. Okay, yeah. I'm I'm fascinating to see, I'm gonna be fascinated to see how he 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 believes it's gonna justify that answer. But I I I'm 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 oh wow, wow, that is awesome. That's awesome, that's awesome. I'm I'm I, I, he, he, he's, I'm so pleased that, that I, I, that I'm listening to someone who's very much in agreement with me up to this point. We've made it 24 minutes in. And other than him saying that the reason people don't get this is because they don't read their Bibles other than that. And that to me, I, I don't know how, how old he is. I think it's just age. The longer you're a Christian, the more you realize, man, there's some godly people who I disagree with strongly. And it's not because they don't read. There's something else. The reason why we don't agree, but I mean, look, uh, he's a Presbyterian. He he sprinkles babies. I think that's uh, utterly not biblical. I'm not going to accuse him the reason he does that because he hasn't read his Bible, and I hope he would accuse, not accuse me of not have – not, have not read my Bible because we don't baptize babies. I would hope that, that 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 wouldn't be the case. I hope he wouldn't accuse me of that because I've been reading my Bible <laughs> – over and 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 over for most of my life okay since I since I became saved as a teenager I mean I don't even know how many times I mean I've told I read the entire New Testament within 12 hours after I was saved and read the entire Bible within 24 hours of being saved and then I just read it and read it and read it and read it so but guess what doesn't make me any more godly doesn't make me any more righteous just means I've read to try to learn and try to understand So just because someone disagrees with me doesn't mean that it's just because they haven't read. Now, I get mad when people disagree. Now, here's my only caveat. If someone argues and wants to argue with me, but they haven't done the reading and they haven't done the studying, then I get mad. And it's not because I think that if they read and study that we will immediately agree. I just think if, they re- if we will read and study together, then we can eliminate so much disagreement and find ourselves much closer together. We may never agree, but it just seems respectful that you don't disagree and argue with someone until you have done the actual study. To me, it's utter disrespect and arrogance, but that's a whole different story. So, so, uh, we are in much agreement here. I, 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 am fearful. We're going to disagree somewhere here in Romans six. I I'm fearful. I mean, it doesn't really matter if we do, but, um, I'm just so happy to be hearing someone talk about this subject that sounds very much like me.
1: But there's a follow-up question. That's all important. How do you want to live now?
0: Oh, I love that. Yes, yes, yes. You can sin all you want and get to heaven because you're saved by an imputed righteousness. But how do you want to live? Wow, that's a a good question. That's a good question. All right, let's see where this goes.
1: If someone says, I just want to keep right on living in the life I lived before. I want to be sexually immoral. I want to be a cursing libertine. I want to do whatever I want whenever I want, then I would say, then you don't know Christ at all. If there's no desire in your heart for holiness, no hunger and thirst for righteousness, no longing for worship, no hunger for the Word of God, no need for Christian fellowship with your brothers and sisters in the Lord, then surely, truly, you are not a Christian.
0: Okay, now, this makes me nervous, but I understand. I, I do believe that it would be fair to say that there should be desire, but I'm very, I'm very hesitant. I'm very hesitant to say, well, you're not saved. Look, I, here's what I try to say. I don't, I don't ever want to say, I am never the judge of whether someone is saved or not saved. And you can't be the judge of whether someone is saved or not saved. I know you're going to quote scripture like well, "You know them by their fruits." First of all, that's referencing false teachers, okay? But uh, and we could get into the discussion here. But but I would say here's what I would do: if, if if someone says, "Okay, so you you you're living any way you want," okay, why do you want to live that way? And how come do you? How come you? There is no love for God, desire for God, hunger for God. How come you don't you don't you're not you don't feel guilty? You don't feel. feel fill any sin. Why do you think that's the case? I would just try to challenge them and go, I think you would have to agree something is not right here, right? Because you're claiming to be a follower of Christ, something is wrong here. I'm just, I just, sometimes I think we always want the ability to tell people whether they're saved or not saved. And I don't, I don't like that idea. I don't like telling people whether they're saved or not saved. I, 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 I would just ask some questions like, okay, what, so why do you not have the desire? Why are you not bothered? Why do you don't see your sin? Why are you not convicted? I mean, come on. Let's just, let's just get down to honesty. So, so what, what's Christianity to you? Like, what, 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 like, help me understand. And I would try to just do more to understand ju- than, than just quickly saying, well, you're not saved because, I, you know, that's, ah. Uh, I think I think we got to be careful with that. We're, we can't see inside the heart. We can't. And and ultimately, if they place their faith in Christ and they've been saved by an imputed righteousness, I've got to be very quick not to then judge them on the basis of something else.
1: Paul's answer, my answer, and I pray the answer of everyone here and everyone who has ever heard this is in verse two. You see it? was Paul's answer to the charge. Shall we sin so the grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it?
0: Okay, now here we are. Here's the the million dollar question. What does it mean that we're dead to sin? What does this mean? Now, am I dead to sin positionally or am I dead to sin practically? So is what Paul's saying, hey, 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 wait a minute. How can someone who's dead to sin positionally want to live in it practically? Shouldn't the reality of your positional standing before God motivate you not to want to live in sin practically? Or is Paul saying, hey, wait, 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 wait. You've been, you're completely dead to it. You, you're, you're completely dead to it. You, it has no power over you. You're completely free from it. Now, everyone preaches this differently. I have a hard time looking at someone going, hey, you're a Christian. You're dead to sin. Obviously, we're not dead to sin. We're very much alive to sin. We sin constantly. We're drawn to it. We feel its power. We we constantly, we have a sinful nature still in. The only way I could be dead to sin is that I no longer have a sinful nature practically. So this has to be like, wait a minute. Why do you want to keep living in it? Because you're dead to sin positionally. Which one is? I think this is a reasonable theological question that all Christians have to struggle with. Now you can write me and go, I am dead to sin practically. Well, congratulations. You're better than the rest of us because I have a sinful nature that's very much alive.
1: How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now folks, I want you to notice something. Notice that Paul does not say, Well, final salvation is by works. So there. That's not his answer. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Can a justified person continue to live in sin? The Greek phrase there, may it never be. By no means. Certainly not. Let it not be. Here's the answer, beloved, to the charge of antinomianism. It is impossible for a Christian to continue to live in sin so that grace may abound. Why? Because the
0: Oh boy. Okay. Now I start having problems. All right. We have to play a lot of word games here. We have to, this has to become the most subjective thing under the sun. You've got to hear me out here. Do not misunderstand me. I want it to be absolutely true that all justified people would no longer live in sin. I want that to be absolutely true. I want that to be true with all of my being. Here is my problem. Problem number one, we obviously still have a sin nature. That doesn't go away. Now, because I have a sin nature, which is inside of me, sin is emanating, it it, it is corrupting, it is touching even my good works. Everything I do is still touched by sin in some way, shape, or form. Clearly, I can't be sinless. Clearly, I can't be perfect. So if I can never reach sinlessness, if I can never reach perfection— if I can never reach those things means that from the point of conversion to the point of glorification, I will live in sin because sin will be a daily part of my life. So then what you have to do is no, 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 no. You're going to sin, but we're talking about you won't live in one specific sin. Okay. Now wait a minute. What, what does that look like? Because if I, if I, if I stop that sin and I stop that sin and I stop that sin, then does that mean at some point I can be sinless? Well, no, you can't be sinless. Well, then I'm never going to repeat the same sin. There's not going to be patterns of sin in my life. See, this is where it gets so subjective in the minds of Christians. I, I, I mm. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin Live any longer therein. Now, I I think the point is is look, I am dead to sin positionally. So why how why do I want to continue to live in sin practically? I think that the, I think that the, this sets up the dichotomy of the Christian life, and and it, it's one that we we struggle with. Positionally, I'm dead to to sin. Practically, I'm not. I should be motivated to not live in sin. But to say that it's not going to happen, that any justified person will not live in sin, you have to now modify what it means to live in sin. You have to modify it. You're going to have to water that down significantly because you're going to have to allow for not being sinless, not being perfect, and you're going to have to allow for, for ongoing sin in the life, but then at the same time claim you're not living in it. That, that's like a weird double speak, and I'm not, I don't like
1: that. The objective reality in their life is that they have died to sin and therefore it is uniformly, utterly impossible that they would continue to live in it.
0: Here we go. He's saying it's an objective reality that you're dead to sin. Well, if if it's an objective reality that I'm dead to sin, if I'm dead to it, well, then I, I then then you have to acknowledge the possibility and not only the possibility, the probability of sinless people, which has never occurred. So I so I I, uh, I think the dead is our position. It can't be our practice. It can't
1: be. One of the greatest acts that God does to every single one of his beloved ones is this. And before I read it, we all need to know that God does this without fail in the heart of every single person he effectually calls and justifies by faith alone. Ezekiel 36, 26.
0: Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, the Ezekiel passage. If you've been studying our... If you've been following along with our study of a uh, proper understanding of law and gospel, I, I told everyone that this would come into play at some point. I told everyone. I warned everyone. Oh, no, 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 no. He's going to go to Ezekiel 36. Oh, this cannot be. This cannot be. All right. I'm going to start in verse 21 of Ezekiel 36. Now this is where we're going to part ways big time. This is, we're going to part ways big time. All right. Because Okay. So he's making the claim that it's a practical reality. Now, whoever's listening to me this afternoon, you're dead to sin. Now, I really want you to just contemplate that, that practically, practically, not positionally, practically, you are dead to sin. Now, I want you to just take a piece of paper. I really want you to do this and go, okay, if someone is truly dead to sin, if they're truly dead, what would that look like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? What would that look like? And would it not mean that sinlessness, perfection is not only possible, it's plausible. You are going to have to answer the affirmative in some way, shape, or form. Now, what he wants to do is to go, okay, okay, Now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How is it possible then? That a justified person, how is it possible that a justified person then can never can uh, that a justified person that it's impossible for a justified person? I'll try to use his 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 vocabulary. Why is it impossible for a justified person to live in sin? Now he hasn't defined exactly what live in sin means, but I've already demonstrated to you you're going to sin. Every single day from the moment of conversion to the point of glorification. So in that way, you're living in sin. So you have to then rewrite what it means and it becomes very subjective in how to define it, which is a problem. But here is his solution. The reason you cannot live in sin is because of what happened in Ezekiel 36 or what's promised in Ezekiel 36. And he says, God does this for everyone. But I, this is where I have major problems. Ezekiel thirty six verse twenty one but I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel, the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen where whether they went. Please note, Israel is being addressed here. Verse 22, therefore say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy namesake, which you have profaned among the heathen, which ye went. He just mentioned Israel a second time. Clearly, he's, God is talking to Israel, to Israel, to Israel, to Israel. Verse 23, and I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you. Who is the in you? In Israel. This is, this is specific promises for the nation of Israel, I do not know why this gets obliterated in the minds of so many Christians. I do not know. I understand. Look, I, w- I look. I went to uh, schools that were dispensational. I went to schools that were covenant. I went to schools that were amillennial. I went to schools that were premillennial. I've gone to every kind of school under the sun, uh, seminary, Bible college, you name it. But the one thing, and I was much more amill for a very lo- a long time in my life. But then I just started thinking from a hermeneutical standpoint. How can I go to these texts that's specifically, clearly for the nation of Israel? Clearly, it's the historical context. Clearly, the grammar is about Israel. And then I go, dun, 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 dun. That's the church. That's us. Israel, sorry. You get the curse. You get the judgment. But we get the promise. We get the blessing. And I, mm, so look what he says. Verse 24. For I will take you. Who is he talking to? Israel from among the heathen gather you out of all the countries and will bring you into your own land. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a covenant promise. God has given to Israel that at some point Israel is going to be gathered. They're going to be brought back to into their land and they're going to be restored. And when they are brought back together, And they are restored. There will be a restoration of them, not just in coming, not just in them coming together, not just the regathering, not just the land. There's going to be something that happens inside of Israel because all Israel will be saved. This is about the regathering, bringing, giving them the land and the salvation of Israel. This is not about us. Verse 25, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, that's Israel, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you and a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them and you shall dwell in the land. Please note verse 28. There's no question who this is referencing and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is Israel. All of that is a promise for Israel that at some point in the future, Israel is going to be put in the land and they will be transformed. They will be saved and they are going to have a new spirit, a new heart, and they will obey God. For some weird reason, we come along. We come driving down the road, driving down the road. Okay, we're sinners. Okay, we have problems. We struggle against sin. We're oh wait 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 wait. Look over there. You see that promise over there? Let's go over there and get it. And we, in a sense, stop the truck, hop out. We run out into the field and go. Let me grab this promise. And Israel's like, no no, that's our promise. Get back. Step back. It's ours. You're done with. God is finished with you guys. You're garbage. You sin too much. God doesn't keep his covenant promises. You're garbage. And then we take the promise, we throw it in the back of the pickup truck, and we take it to town to say, look, everyone, look at this promise. Our our, our sinful heart is removed. Now, this basically, it, you begin to use this to teach the eradication of the old nature. Now you have a new heart. I mean, listen, it, does that not sound like the eradication of the old nature? Look, a new heart I'm going to give you? A new spirit I'm going to put within you? If I get a new heart and I get a new spirit, where's the old nature? And then look what he says is going to happen. I'm going to put the spirit within you, and you're going to walk in my statutes, and you're going to keep my judgments and do them. This seems to say that the eradication of the old nature and basically sinless perfection to some level. I mean, in fact, it I, I pretty much describes it. Now, he's getting ready to claim that for us, for every justified person. Well, every justified person does not walk in his statutes, does not follow his judgments. We sin continually and we still have a sinful nature. We still have a depraved heart. Oh, wow. Wow, 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 wow. Okay, I'm going to let him go there. I knew, I knew it was coming. I just knew this was coming. I knew it was coming. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Okay, All right, let's let's see where it goes.
1: I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Listen and. Cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Yes, you can live however you want if you've truly come to Christ, but what is it that you really want? What is it that you desire? Do you desire to sin so that grace may abound? Or do you say with the psalmist in Psalm 42, one, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Do you live in those dispositions of soul? Our Lord Jesus pronounced.
0: Please note, he didn't do anything. He, he didn't explain the context of Ezekiel 36, and he, and he didn't even explain the practical ramifications of this. If I get this new heart and he's going to cause me to obey, then you would have to say sinless perfection is plausible, possible. It, it's, it's a reality, but it's not a reality. I want it to be a reality, but I still have the same sinful nature. Well, I don't understand. Like, so we're going to combat the charge of antinomianism by saying, no. You won't live in sin because you now have a new heart. You now will, you're going to obey. But, but he's not yet, he, he's not offered the but yet because at some point he's going to say, but we're not going to do it perfectly. However, we're not going to do it. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Ezekiel 36 seems to be the eradication of the old nature. The old nature is still there. And not only that, why, why did you just conveniently not tell everyone that's written to Israel? <laughs> Because you replaced Israel, you replaced the church with Israel. Is that, is that what you did?
1: Blessed for all time in his opening words of the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall... Oh boy,
0: now he's going to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is law. Law. It describes all of these things to be blessed. And guess what? We will never do those things. It says, blessed is the the pure in heart. Blessed are those who seek and thirst after righteousness. We fall short of these. We don't have a pure heart. We don't seek after righteousness in any meaningful way. We don't do all the things there in the Sermon on the Mount. We fall short of the one who preached it. He's the blessed man. And in Christ Jesus, I'm blessed with all spiritual blessings. You're making those blessings now conditional to what we can or can't do. And we will never do those anywhere close to the way we're supposed to. So we would never be blessed. He just, he's now taking a law sermon. The entire Sermon on the Mount is law. And now he's using the law to now prove whether someone is saved. So he literally, he's now falling. He's going to fight against antinomianism. He's going right back into a works-based system. What's the works-based system? Oh, you want to know you're saved? Well, if you're truly saved, guess what? You have a new heart. You're going to obey. You're going to follow the Sermon on the Mount. No, you're not.
1: Inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Remember Peter? Peter was a man who definitely knew his own poverty of spirit and he mourned and he wept bitterly over his own sinfulness and who desired greatly not to live in sin any longer. Listen to the way Peter describes it in 1 Peter 4.1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer would live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. We are in Christ. We don't live for ourselves any longer. We are not bound over to the lusts of our flesh.
0: I hear that? We no longer live for ourselves? Are you kidding me? We constantly live for ourselves. We're not bound by lust? Are you not t- on any given Sunday, churches are filled with people who are filled with lust and the person preaching is
1: Oh, man, dear. We have been broken away from that by the power of God. Now, folks, does that mean that we're saved by our pursuit of holiness? Does that mean that we're saved by the tyranny of sin being broken in our lives and hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Of course not. Now, now see, but once again, okay, I... I
0: oh. He throws it out. So the tyranny of sin has been broken in our lives. So the So you have to believe in the eradication of the old man. Now, I completely agree with him that, yes, we're not saying we're saved by this. I agree that you're saying that, but in a roundabout way, you are saying that. You're saying we're not saved by this righteousness, but what you're telling me, if we don't possess this righteousness, and we don't hunger and thirst after righteousness, and if we live in sin, then we're not saved. So You're saying I'm not saved by it, but you're telling me I'm not saved if I don't have it, which means I must have it in order to be saved. <laughs> So you're just going in circles.
1: Of course not. Paul knew the same glorious liberation from enslavement to sin. And he wrote in Holy Scripture these wonderful words, 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all, that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. A Christian is not living for themselves any longer, but for him who died for them... (laughs) That's just ridiculous.
0: A Christian no longer lives for themselves. Give me a break. We constantly live for ourselves. We constantly think about ourselves, desire to please ourselves, defend ourselves, argue for ourselves, get what we want, desire what we want, think about what we want, lust for what we want. It's literally what we do. The church has been demonstrating that for 2,000 years.
1: And rose again. Now does that mean that the Christian. Believes that he's going to get into heaven. By living for him who died for him and rose again. Of course not. See he's playing a semantics game
0: here. Hey you. We don't believe we get into heaven by doing these things. I just know that if you don't do these things. You're not getting into heaven. (laughs) Then then you're saying it's required. It's either required or it's not required. Well, it's not required to get into heaven, but if you don't do it, then you won't get into heaven, meaning it's required to get into heaven. (laughs) And you're basing this all on supposedly because we now have a new heart. The sinful nature is gone. The sinful nature is gone. The power of sin is broken. And now we can obey God. What, what, What he still hasn't even said he still hasn't even offered any kind of word about how sinless we can be and how perfect we can get. He he's he's not given us any warning yet, because at this point, you would have to conclude, according to the Ezekiel passage, that God will make us, God will cause us to walk in his judgments and keep his statutes. That's what the text says. If you apply it to us, it's applied to Israel in there and when Israel will be saved, which is in the future. I'm, I'm assuming you probably attach that to the millennial kingdom, but I digress. <laughs> Because uh, he's yet to explain exactly what that means. He just says it's going to happen. Hey, the, the Sermon on the Mount, you can do it. Boom, you got it. Hey, the tyranny of sin, broken. Boom, you have a new heart. Boom, you have a new spirit. Boom, the old is gone. Boom, you can walk in this you can do it all. You can do it all. Now you don't have to do it all to be saved. But if you don't do it all, well, then you are not saved.
1: Paul continues, look at Romans 6.3. Or do you not know that is that all of us? Okay, we'll stop right here.
0: We'll stop right here because he's going to Romans six three. He's going to Romans six three. Oh man, this so went off the. I so desperately wanted him twenty nine twenty one. We agreed what, what eighteen minutes of the sermon. I was in such agreement with. I was such agreement with. And then it all fell apart and it reverted right back to where it always goes when you deal with this subject. And I don't understand why. Why do we have such a hard time with this? Why do we have such a hard time? You're saved by an imputed righteousness. And then immediately, without fail, what do we revert to? Well, you are saved by an imputed righteousness. But if you don't do this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, this, well, then you were never saved. You can't live in sin. Okay, well, what do you mean I can't live in sin? Because we all live in sin right? How do I know we all live in sin? Because unless we reach sinless perfection, we're constantly sinning. And I know if I commit, if I break one point of the law, I'm guilty of all the law. So I'm constantly guilty of the law. I'm constantly in sin. So you can't tell me, well, and you say, well, no, that's not what we mean by live by sin. So then you have to water it down to something that you think you can somehow achieve, but you're still sinning. And then you come along and say, you have a new heart and a new spirit, and God will cause you to walk in his judgments and obey his statutes. But Okay, so that then I should be able to do it perfectly. Well, no, no, no. You can't do it perfectly. So wait a minute. I thought I was saved by an imputed righteousness. Well, you are. But if you don't do this, this, and this, and this, then you never got the imputed righteousness. So you're judging my imputed righteousness by what I do and don't do. You can't judge my imputed righteousness based on what I do or don't do. You can't do that. You would have to judge it by ta- by by you would have to judge the imputed righteousness by the stand by the imputed righteousness itself you would have to test that righteousness and that righteousness is perfect see the 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 all of these struggles that we see within the evangelical world to try to make this work all of these just insane double speak talking in circles when you watch all of this I want you to hear what I'm about to say. When you watch all of this, just double speak and just no consistency. Won't take any of this to a logical conclusion. Say one thing, then backtrack. Just all of this craziness. Just stop and remember, that's why the Catholic system seems so convoluted. Because it's their attempt to work these same things out. At least the Catholic system is willing to acknowledge this. You are infused with righteousness. So that explains why they demand a practical righteousness in order to be saved. Makes sense because they believe it's infused, right? They believe that we're going to continue to sin and sin and sin and sin. So we need all the help we can get. We need the sacraments. We need the church. Okay. But then they realize that no matter how much help we get, no matter how great we are, that we're going to have enough sin in our lives still when we get to the end, even with an infused righteousness and even with all the sacraments, that we're going to need to go to purgatory to have it purged out at least. And they talk about indulgences and all the other things you need to earn to try to help yourself out. They at least have a system. Our system is this weird double speak. We are saved by an imputed righteousness apart from works. Imputed, not infused. So don't add works. Now, if you're saved, you will do ABCD. Okay. Wait, wait. I thought you just said it was saved by an imputed righteousness. Well, you are saved by imputed righteousness, but in a roundabout way, you've been infused with something great, right? You've been infused with now you have a new heart, a new spirit, and now you're going to walk in the commandments of God. And if you don't do that, well, then you were never saved. Well, wait a minute. I thought it was saved by an imputed righteousness. Well, you were saved by an imputed righteousness, but if you don't do these things, you demonstrate that you were never saved. So therefore, if I don't do it, then I'm not saved. It's just one big mindless circle. You're saved by an imputed righteousness, but we're going to determine if you were saved by that imputed righteousness by a practical righteousness. But the practical righteousness doesn't save you. It supposedly proves that you're saved. And what proves that you're saved is not us looking at the imputed righteousness. It's looking at your practical righteousness. But just know you're not saved by it. But if you don't have it, you were not saved, which means you have to have it in order to be saved. So at some point, the imputed righteousness gets forgotten. And what are we looking at? Practical, 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 practical. And now he's throwing out all the standards. You won't live in it. He doesn't define what that means, but you won't live in it. You will obey. You will. It seems you'll follow the, the Sermon on the Mount. Now he's yet to give, at some point, I'm assuming before the sermon is over, we're going to get, but, however, you're not going to do it perfectly. <laughs> But you don't live in it. It's just it's just contradiction after contradiction after contradiction after contradiction. All right. Well, I, I said we were going to finish, but we're a minute and tw- or a minute. We're an hour and 12 minutes into this, and we have 20 minutes go to review. So this would go on for like four hours. So I've got it saved. We will try to finish this at some point. I don't know when. We'll try to save this at some point, but I've given you enough to talk about. Oh, those in the Discord channel, just go to town. Let me, let me, let me know what you think. Email newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. You see why I was so hesitant? Like the, I, I I was scared just from the email when they said, oh, regeneration is the solution. Yeah, and he went to a passage about the regeneration of the nation Israel. <laughs> That's what he went to. But uh, oh, oh man, there's so much that happened here. Mm. Okay, well, we'll see what the reaction is to all of this. I know, I know, many are going to disagree. But just, all I right, listen here's what I ask you to do. I'll just end with this: just think about what I've said logically. Just think about just think about the claims that we make as Christians. It's just so bizarre to me. All right. So I'm just going to be repetitive here, but I'm just going to make sure we understand this. It's this weird game we play and we can't seem to see how there's just internal, there's, there's logical inconsistency and doublespeak and circular reasoning and what we do as Christians. And we have to be confronted by this. All right. If we agree that we are saved by an imputed righteousness, I cannot stress this enough imputed it's alien it's outside of me right i'm still the same center in a sense i i I use the illustration the school illustration i'm going to go back to it I go to math class and I fail every test. It's getting close to the end of the year, and I've got a less than zero average. And the teacher is like, "You're horrible. You're a failure. You're the worst, ma- worst math student in the history of math. You are horrible. You, you're, you're just this. You're, you're a failure. You're never going anywhere. You're dumb, right? You are the worst math student in history, right? And then, and a roundabout way, I'll just use this for illustration purposes." Someone stands up who has never got anything less than a hundred, has never missed one question, has always got the bonus questions. They have a perfect grade and they've had a perfect grade every year they've ever taken a math class. And that person says, here is my math score and I want to accredit it to their account. I will take their failure. They can have my, they can have my A, my 4.0. They can have all of my math accomplishments. And that's accredited to my account. Now, the minute that's accredited to my account, the teacher would have to declare me then to be perfect in math, smart. I'm all of this. I, 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 I'm I, the greatest math student. I'll go from the worst to the best ever because I've never missed a question in math. That's how they would have to view me. They would have to view me that way because of an imputed math score. Now, take that And then consider this. That teacher then can't say, well, yeah, you've been given this imputed math score. That's perfect. That's wonderful. But mister, you're not getting out of here until you take the test. So here's the test. You better pass. And then they give me the test. Guess what? Guess what I'm going to score on that test? I'm still going to demonstrate that I'm the worst math student in the history of mankind, that I am horrible, that I I don't know anything because nothing changed inside of me. All that was done was the perfect math score was accredited to me. So giving me that test is useless. If they want to test my math, well, my math is now the imputed math. So they would have to test the person who gave me all of their perfect math scores. And guess what they would get? A perfect score. So they could never say, you can't pass, you can't fail, because I have been given an, an imputed math score. Now, take that over to theology. If I say that I'm saved by an imputed righteousness, right? That I'm made righteous because of what Christ's done. His righteousness is imputed to my account. His perfect and his uh, passive and active obedience is imputed to my account. I can't test that by looking at my practical actions. Because the practical actions will always show what? That I'm still a sinner, So if you test me, I'm going to fail. So what do you do with your test? You give it to Christ. You give it to Jesus. And he's going to say, he's perfect. He's righteous. He's holy. Even though in practice, I am not. Now, the minute we say that, we come along and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, 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 no. No. And so then we start with all of our circular reasoning. It goes something like this. Well, you may be saved by a practical or you may be saved by an imputed righteousness. But if there's, not enough, if there's not enough practical righteousness, then you never were saved. Well, wait a minute. Now you're testing my imputed based off some practical standard. How are you doing that? And if you tell me that I'm not saved by this practical standard, but it just proves that I'm saved, all you're really, you're, you you may try to say it that way, but guess what you're really saying? If I don't have it, I'm not saved. Therefore, I must have this practical righteousness in order to be saved. Therefore, I, it's a part of salvation. You can't say, no, no, no. It just proves it. No, it becomes a requirement for it. And you say, no, 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 no. It proves it. If it proves it, it's a requirement. And if it's a requirement, then you are not saying I'm saved by an imputed righteousness. You are saying that I'm saved by a practical righteousness. And then you come along and say, well, well. the reason you can meet the practical standard is because now you, you have been given power. You now have the ability to say no to sin, yes to God. You have a new heart. The, basically, the old nature is eradicated. You can do it. Well, then you would have to demand that I reach sinless perfection. But then we'll come along and say, but, but, but you actually can't be perfect. Well, if I can't be perfect, then it means I'm continuing to sin. And if I'm continuing to sin, then how do I really pass this test that you're giving me? Because it's going to become very subjective. So this is typically how the test is given in the evangelical world. How do you know you're saved? You will you will love God, but you're never going to do it perfectly. All right, so my imperfect love for God is sufficient to supposedly pass the test, proving that I'm saved. So my imperfection... Proves that I'm saved. No, 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 no. It's not imperfection. It's going to be, it's going to be godly. It's going to, but you're already telling me I'm not going to do it perfectly. Well, you're going to do it some. So, so how much do I have to do to prove that I'm saved? It's just this never ending talking in circles. Hey, you can live for God, but you can't do it perfectly. Well, that means there's a limit in me living for God. And if I can't do it perfectly, and you're going to judge me based off basically my obedience to the law, well the law demands perfection. So can or can't I? And it's just it's just nonsense. We oh man. All right. News IF at yahoo.com. News IF at yahoo.com. News IF at yahoo.com. News IF at, at yahoo.com. What a maddening, what a maddening circular insane theological mess we create in the church and it just we complicate it so much and you know again it's, it's my study of Catholicism where the Catholics at a Catholic university was basically saying come on man you guys are just as works based as we are come on this, you're, you just, you just play games. You just, you just use semantics to get around it. You demand the same kind of works and you demand the same kind of thing. You just want to, you just want to say it in a different way. Because if I don't have the works that you say that's re- that proves that I'm saved, then I'm not saved, meaning those works are required in order to be saved. Well, you tell everyone you're saved by an imputed righteousness, and then you don't judge the person based off an imputed righteousness. You judge the person based off a practical righteousness. And if you're going to judge me based off my practical righteousness, then the imputed righteousness means nothing. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. No, 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 no. We're not Catholics. So then I'm like, okay, I got to read. I got to think this through because either my choice is I do believe in infused righteousness and go to the Catholic church, or I believe in imputed righteousness and we got to rethink the way we look at this. And and we got to l- look at it in a way that doesn't have us talking in circles that are illogical and that we backtrack every time we say one thing and then go, co- no, 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 no. I mean, you, you, you can't live in sin, but I mean, you can't be perfect. So I mean, a way you'll be living for sin, but I mean, you won't be living in a sin in a way to, I mean, you, you can't, I mean, you could do this, but you can't do that. But if you do this, and it's just, it's just maddening. So I, I, I hope you will at least give it consideration because you say things and then you backtrack on them. And then you talk double speak and then you talk in circles. That should bother you. And it bothers me because I've been guilty of doing it all myself. All right. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. We will be back at some point this evening to do more live broadcasting. We'll probably try to finish this review. Uh, We've got 20 minutes left, so we'll try to finish this review maybe in a couple of hours. God bless.